0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: If we had a thorough accounting of the health effects of the burning of fossil fuels, I think that that calculus would be extremely clear. It is demonstrably the case that the total decarbonization, at least of the U.S. economy, would be entirely paid for simply through the public health benefits of cleaning up our air.
2: I remember a sweet kind of naive time when we all thought if we just did our bit to stop wasting resources and recycled a bit more, we could save the planet or the environment as we called it back then. A decade or so later, things warmed up literally and we were given a very clear goal by the climate scientists. We must keep warming below two degrees Celsius, which was then later revised to 1.5 degrees Celsius on pre-industrial temperatures. Which sounded waffly and a little untangible and we all sort of found it naggy and confusing and got on with business as usual. But then we read climate journalist David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, an epically long essay that appeared in New York Magazine in July 2017. It became the most read article in the journal's history and it was the thing that saw many of us finally freak out. The essay, which became a book by the same name, pulled together reviews and studies and outlined the grimmest of scenarios for life on earth. If we continued spewing out emissions as we had been, it wasn't so much dystopian, it was unapologetically apocalyptic. I remember it started with the line, it is worse, much worse than you think. And it went on to describe a world where Manhattan would be underwater, Australia totally unlivable, Europe would be in permanent drought, there'd be twice as much war, half as much food, and hundreds of millions of climate refugees. And to fix all the floods, fires, and buckling of infrastructure would require double the money that currently exists on the planet. Now here's the thing, the uninhabitable Earth, Almost single-handedly divided the climate science world. In Camp One were those who think the general public need the information presented delicately with oodles of hope. Doom overwhelms, went the argument, and shuts people down from action. Scientists in this camp, such as Michael Mann, also accused David of over-alarming the facts, although David has stood by all his claims as correct. In Camp 2, there were those who totally backed David's worst possible yet entirely plausible and quite likely scenario approach. This camp observed that the tame, softly, softly way was just simply not working. We'll only act if we really see the situation as it is. An emergency. Now, I have to say, I've wavered between the two camps over the years. Certainly, there is a lot of psychological evidence that scaring people to act Often backfires. We are hardwired to fight or flee when presented with a threat. When presented with the idea we might be about to wipe ourselves out, we figure we can't fight, so we flee and hide our heads in the sand. But also this is an emergency, the biggest we could ever possibly face. And I've come to think that come what may, now is not the time to modicoddle. We have to harden up. There is no choice. Off the back of the uninhabitable earth, David Wallace-Wells is now one of the leading climate voices globally. He's been on Joe Rogan and Megan Kelly. He's all around the place. He just switched his column over to the New York Times as well. He and I have emailed back and forth over the years, but in our chat in today's episode, I want to find out exactly five years on from when he first wrote that essay, is it worse, much worse than we think or thought, will the earth become uninhabitable? And also, is the wild, alarmed, fired up approach the better way? Either way, this is a super important conversation, but it's also a really hopeful one. Now, before we kick into the chat, I just want to flag or acknowledge that I'm now running advertising on this podcast. You might have noticed. I want to be transparent. I have to make this a viable enterprise to keep going. But at the same time, please be assured I have placed strict restrictions on what I will allow to run on the platform. Obviously, no fossil fuel advertising, no junk food, gambling, tobacco, toxic consumer products and so on. I can't monitor the process rigidly, however. So please do let me know if you feel any boundaries have been overstepped. I want this to be a nourishing place. Although at the same time, I will again, ask you to respect the commercial reality of this situation. Anyway, let's get to it. Here's David Wallace-Wells. Welcome, David Wallace-Wells. Thank you so much for for joining me after a very long communication over email, I think over several years of trying to get in touch with each other. Thank you very much for for joining me this morning. No, it's great
1: to talk to you. I'm really excited
2: about it. Have I got this right? You first got into this space when you sort of awakened from complacency to activism via alarm. How did that happen? How were you alarmed and what kind of complacency were you awakened from?
1: Well, I think like to answer the second part of the question first, I think like a lot of people I grew up with, a lot of people I know now, I have known for my whole life that climate change was a problem. I was taught about it in elementary school. And I remember watching An Inconvenient Truth, I guess, in my early 20s and, you know, worrying about climate alongside of a lot of other things that I worried about, about the state and future of the world. But that was about as far as I took it. It didn't seem to me to be an urgent threat. It didn't seem to me to be an immediate threat. And it didn't seem to me to be, even if you were imagining sort of some ugly outcomes down the road, it didn't seem to me all that likely that those outcomes were going to affect someone like me who has lived his whole life in New York City. I currently live on the 15th floor of an apartment building. I used to live on the 72nd floor of an apartment building. So in a, like in a concrete universe, I was literally built out and away from nature. And I think that really allowed me to think of the climate crisis as something that was happening elsewhere that was only going to threaten people living elsewhere on the planet. Probably to the extent that they were threatened, we're going to be dealing with those impacts like a generation or two down the line. I'm a journalist, so I keep my eye in particular. I'm interested in the near future and science and technology. And so I'm often reading a lot of academic papers and talking to a lot of people doing sort of cutting edge work in a variety of fields. And sometime in 2016, I just started picking up a lot more of a signal that things were really quite scary in the climate realm. I think looking back on it had to do with the way that the UN IPCC cycle was working. So this is the big UN organization that processes these big scientific reports. And on some level, they set the agenda of the world's climate community of researchers. And I think that I was just picking up on the fact that there were a lot of people doing pretty eye-opening work on especially high-end warming scenarios that was going to be published over the next couple of years. Looking at it as something of an outsider, you know, I, I knew enough to read the papers legibly, but I wasn't like deep in the climate space and hadn't spent my life looking at these graphs before. For, I was just shocked at what they said was likely or possible to happen within my own lifetime. The thing that really set me off was that I saw in the news that the Arctic recorded a day in December of that year, in December of 2016, that was 40 degrees Celsius warmer than, than the average. And that really alarmed me, given what I had been reading, and made me think that we may be on the precipice of a sort of a climate phase shift. It turns out that that panic was unwarranted, that we're in a much more conventional degradation rather than a dramatic shift from one kind of a world to another. But in almost every way, the the longer I looked, the deeper I looked at um, the research, and especially the more widely I cast my net, the more I found really quite scary projections for economic impacts, agricultural impacts, the effect of extreme heat on the human body not to mention the sort of conventional list of droughts and wildfires and sea level rise and all the rest of that. And I started to see this as such an array of impacts and threats that you almost couldn't find a human life on earth that wouldn't be impacted by it in some way. And in many cases, in many ways, that made me think in a whole different way about the climate crisis, which is to say, not as one political cause or one social cause among many, but as the theater in which all of our lives will be conducted on a platform that was being destabilized because of climate changes and whose outcome would be determined by the actions that we took in the space of a decade or two, which is to say, in my adult lifetime. And that combination of Everything is up for grabs and everything could be thrown into disarray. And what we need to do to stop that from happening will happen while I'm a grown up on this planet. Made me feel that this is just an incredibly dramatic story. Putting aside the advocacy part of it, just as a storyteller, it was like, this is huge. You can't see anything that lives outside of it as a story. I felt pretty pulled in down the rabbit hole.
2: Because once you start down that rabbit hole, you can't unsee it, right? I mean, in the uninhabitable earth, you took an alarmist position. You you painted a picture of the worst case scenario. And we were looking at temperatures by the end of this century of four, five, potentially even six degrees Celsius. That was the picture that you were painting as a potential. Five years on from that essay and,
1: and the book, is the situation worse than you can imagine? Well it sort of depends how you want to think about it. In general the higher end range of those warming scenarios that I I wrote about in the book seem less likely, which is to say north of four degrees, maybe even north of three and a half degrees seems unlikely. That's not to say impossible, but we have more confidence that we're going to avoid those worst case scenarios than we did a few years ago. That's really good news. And it's because of a few factors, one of which is the political awakening around the world around this issue from Greta Thunberg being a total nobody who literally had no friends protesting by herself outside of Swedish parliament to being the leader of a global movement numbering in the millions and many other people inspired to act like her, many people out in the street, climate striking, extinction rebellion, sunrise in the US. It's both a political awakening and a generational turnover in the environmental climate cause. And that's been really significant at a cultural level. It's also made our politicians and our corporate leaders take notice. And so there's been a sort of new era of more focused rhetoric, in some cases, real commitments, but often more just rhetorical movement from those figures. You know, They're not doing as much as they they could be. They're not investing as much as they could be in a transition, but they're in a very different place than they were a few years ago when many of them were functionally in a denial state about climate change. And then we have probably most significantly this quite dramatic technological shift in transition, which is to say the cost of renewable energy has fallen really dramatically, much more dramatically than almost any of the conventional forecasters predicted as recently as a decade ago. And in that decade, the cost of solar power and wind power and battery power has fallen something like, depending on the technology, somewhere between 75 and 90%. So we have you know, something like tenfold reduction in the cost of all of these renewable technologies. And what that means is that it is no longer the case that we have to make a trade-off between what the cost-benefit analysis tells us to do and what the climate emergency tells us what to do. For a generation, that's how we thought of it. This was a trade-off. We could take action to avoid dramatic warming, but it would cost. And now we're in a situation where actually not taking action represents the biggest cost because investing in more fossil fuel infrastructure is actually just in a strictly dollars and cents calculus is more expensive than investing in solar power, which the IEA recently called the cheapest electricity in history. 90% of the world now lives in places where renewable energy is cheaper than than dirty energy. So anyone who's making long-term plans, whether it be in the private sector or the public sector, is looking at these same charts and saying, oh, well, we're not going to be living in a fossil fuel era much longer. Let's start to move ourselves. And as a result, we haven't made that much concrete progress. But everybody who's making these plans is making a very different set of plans than they were making 10 years ago. And as a result, when we aggregate all those plans and pledges and commitments, it starts to look like, well, we may not take sufficient action to avoid what used to be called catastrophic warming. We're almost certainly not going to meet the goals we agreed to under the Paris Accords. And yet, we are almost certain to do much, much more than we assumed as a base case, really as recently as five years ago. As a result, we now think, depending on which analysis you look at, people estimate somewhere between two and a half and and three degrees, basically. So we've shaved possibly as much as two and a half degrees off of our expected warming in five years. As I said a minute ago, like a lot of that is like how we draw lines into the future. We're not yet making the concrete actual investments in those changes that we need to to make them real, but they seem much more plausible as projections going forward than the ones that take us to four and five degrees, which required something like a fivefold growth in coal over the 21st century, which is not going to happen.
2: I think everybody agrees in the scientific community that we will not come in under two degrees Celsius, which is, of course, what the original Paris Agreement was working to and then said, actually, it needs to be 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Now, you're saying between two and three, two and a half to three degrees. That's still pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, can you paint a picture of what the world will look like? And that's within our lifetime. It's by the end of this century. Can you paint a picture of what that
1: will look like it's really hard to keep both of these ideas in your head at once, but I think it's really important. There has been good news on climate. There is progress. There is reason to think the worst case scenarios are less likely, but that doesn't mean that this is a we can declare victory and this is a good outcome. We've also, at the same time, moved so slowly that the things we used to consider appealing climate futures are literally off the table and impossible to achieve. And we are left with some range of outcomes that we used to consider unacceptable. And we may end up on the pretty you know, on the cooler end of that spectrum or the warmer end of that spectrum, but we're going to be dealing with considerably more climate impact, climate disruption and climate suffering as a result. So two degrees of warming, which, you know, you mentioned most scientists would say is is unlikely. I think that's conventional wisdom is shifting a little bit. I think most might say now that something like 1.8 or 1.9 is possible if like a best case scenario. But I think functionally given how sclerotic our institutions are, how slow we are to adopt change, I think we can basically talk about two degrees as like a, that'll be a very good outcome if we get there. And at two degrees, we're talking about an estimated 150 million additional people dying of air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels.
2: Because uh, the other thing with that so, 10 million uh, figure, it doesn't quite capture the effect it has on the rest of the population, because we now seen that air pollution is affecting cognitive performance massively. Alzheimer's as well has got a direct link to this air pollution, ADHD.
1: You can't find a measure of well-being that isn't damaged by it. It's that pervasive. The truth is, none of us are breathing safe air. The WHO just cut its threshold for clean air in half this past year. And it's sort of like the issue with lead paint where like the researchers keep trying to find a safe level. And every time they do that, they're like, actually, that's not safe. So we don't even know that the level that the WHO has set is safe, but they're saying this is the new benchmark. And a recent study I was looking at a few weeks ago found that on the entire planet, there are three locations that meet that threshold where according to the WHO, it is safe to breathe the air. There are two places in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands in the Caribbean, and then one in the South Pacific, which is a a former French colony called New Caledonia. Now these effects are on a spectrum, so you can be relatively close and the impacts won't be that dramatic, or you can be living in Delhi where the average resident of Delhi's life expectancy is nine years shorter than it would be without air pollution. Basically, wherever there's air pollution, human flourishing will suffer. And it's mostly coming from burning of fossil fuels, although there's some agricultural burning and there's also wildfire and bushfire, which is an increasingly big part of the problem. Also linked to climate change, of course. Yeah. And, you know, last year, global wildfires released more carbon into the atmosphere than any country in the world, but the U.S. and China. Wildfires would be the world's third biggest emitter. And of course, we have very little control over over that carbon release, which is quite concerning. If we had a thorough accounting of the the health effects of the burning of fossil fuels, I think that that calculus would be extremely clear. We're sort of evolving our understanding of these impacts, but even given the crude, almost certain undercounting of the health effects of burning fossil fuels, it is demonstrably the case that the total decarbonization, at least of the U.S. economy, would be entirely paid for simply through the public health benefits of cleaning up our air. So we talked about 150 million additional people dying of air pollution. It's estimated that storms and flooding events that used to hit once a century would, in many parts of the world, hit once a year. And storm events that used to hit much more infrequently, like once every 500 or once every 1,000 years, would be coming at something like once every decade, once every 20 years. In parts of especially the Southeast, uh, South Asia and the Middle East, it would be so hot during summer that it would routinely be a lethal risk to move around outside and certainly work outside, especially for the elderly. On top of that, the UN expects that at two degrees, we're likely to see something on the order of 200 million climate refugees. You know, I think the politics of the last few years suggests we're not all that well prepared to respond to. So those are just a few of the impacts, but, you know, there are, they're are agricultural impacts Um, with Crop yields can fall somewhere north of two degrees, probably between two and two and a half degrees. It's expected that we would be sort of locking into place the permanent loss of all the planet's ice sheets. If we lost all that ice, it would take millennia to unfold. But if we lost all that ice, we could be looking at sea level rise of 70 or 80 meters, um, which is enough to drown two thirds of the world's major cities. Now, again, it would take at least hundreds, probably thousands of years, and it might not get that extreme even at the end point. But we're talking about a, a really redrawn map of the planet, not just one in which you know a few low-lying islands are suffering but one in which the whole look of the of the globe has, has been transformed
2: yeah and look, i'll just throw in there in terms of the temperatures and how hot it will get in australia of course We are considered part of the global south in terms of the impact. We're going to be really impacted and, you know, we're talking two degrees, two to three degrees warming as an average around the world, but here in Australia and, of course, in parts of Africa and India, we're really looking at more like a really solid three to four degrees warming by the end of this century. So any Australian listening, bear in mind that, you know, I've mentioned it before in previous podcasts with various, you know, IPCC scientists, they've pointed out we are going to have no more winter by 2050. You know, really across Australia, I've looked at the projections done by the CSIRO. They've seen really it's going to be 3 upwards of 4 degrees in most of the, you know, most of Australia.
1: Australia is a really fascinating case study in the in the sense that it it has these characteristics that are more common in the global south, that it's going to be hit by really intense climate impacts, but it's also a pretty rich country. And so it's a how will wealth encounter those changes? But to talk about, you know, we we think about these numbers. First of all, they seem small. They're small numbers. Second of all, especially when we think about them in terms of averages, they're not all that intimidating because we say, okay, so every summer day is going to be three degrees, four degrees warmer. Not the biggest deal in the world. But actually, the most dramatic impacts are in how totally disrupted our extreme weather events will be. And we'll be seeing events like it's not just the hottest day of the year is going to be three days warmer. We could be seeing things that are totally off the charts. And just to illustrate that and talk about things we've actually seen in the real world, not that we're projecting into the future. About a month ago, we saw simultaneous temperature anomalies in the Arctic and Antarctic, which itself has basically never been seen before. But in the Antarctic, it was 40 degrees Celsius warmer than it would be, you know, during that time of year. So I, what, what's the temperature where you are today?
2: It's around about 20 degrees Celsius. We're talking about something like a 60 degree day. I mean, here in Australia, we have had back-to-back catastrophic bushfires. Here in New South Wales we've, and in Queensland, there's been floods that haven't just been a year apart. They've been a month apart. Floods that have seen huge evacuations and deaths And of course, it just rolls out around the world. In South Africa, the same thing's happening. 300 people died in one day from floods. So yes, we're already seeing it. And I think you make a really good point. Here in Australia, we're going to have to move very fast into adaptation mode. When I talk about adaptation with people, I think it suddenly hits home that mitigation is no longer something that we can just rely on. We're now going to have to adapt to massively changed living circumstances. And it's everything from seawalls being built around Manhattan. Does adaptation sort of frighten you a little? I mean, it just hits home to me that we are now going to have to get used to, in all kinds of radical ways, this new
1: unnormal. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking of it. You know, I often say 1.2 degrees, which is about where we are on the planet. It, that really doesn't sound like very much, but it actually we it puts us entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history. So we are already today living outside the range of climate conditions that to which we owe everything we know of as a civilization. And that means that quite a lot is going to have to be rethought and remodeled. We're not perfect, but we can respond. And I do think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about climate impacts, we're really only talking about half of the story and the human response is the other half and adaptation is a really big part of that. I also think it's critically important to keep in mind that we don't just like snap our fingers and transport ourselves into a world in which we've eliminated all these these climate risks, even though they are unfolding. I mean, the, just the literal cost, not to mention the legal problems, the political problems of doing something like building a seawall to protect lower Manhattan. This is an astronomical project. A lot of the climate scientists I, I know who are focused on adaptation will often say, We can't even adapt to the warming we have now. We're not even doing a good job with that. You know, think about how many people are suffering from air pollution from the bushfires or the wildfires. You think we can just snap our fingers and protect them when the fires are going to be two or four or six or eight times worse? It's going to be really hard. That's not to say it's going to be impossible, but it will require a fundamental, profound reorientation of our political and social priorities in a way that itself will be psychologically, emotionally and politically destabilizing. Even that's going to be hard.
2: To that point, and to the resistance that still exists at all levels, what is the most problematic pushback now? What's the most? What do you get hit with the most, and how do you deal with it? How do you combat it?
1: Well, I think right now at the moment, it's a lot about how important energy is to people in a short term way, and how what we can make of and extrapolate from the um, the way that our politics have been shaken by the war in the Ukraine in particular, and the sort of slightly longer term energy price um, shock of the last, say, nine months or so. How can we imagine forcing through a much larger transition that may in the short term be much more disruptive? It is the case that in America in particular, although to a lesser extent in a lot of the Anglophone countries like Australia, the right to drive a car and using cheap gas is like A really important thing to a lot of people, and they get really uncomfortable when that's somewhat taken away from them. The logic is very, very clear right now that if we look at, say, a 10-year timeline or a 15-year timeline, the logic is very, very clear that if if our cars are all electric, if our energy system has been transitioned largely, if not entirely to renewables over that period of time, there are going to be very few people who are worse off as a result. And I think that the conflict in the Ukraine shows that we would be much better off if we were not dependent on autocrats and dictators for our way of life. And were depending on things like the sun and the wind and the sea, which are all much friendlier. In almost all cases, you, you have sufficient renewable resources within your own borders, which means that you're not entangled in these complicated alliances. You're not you know, subject to effective geopolitical blackmail or that kind of thing. Just about every way you look at it, the, transition, the argument for the transition is very clear when you take a sort of medium-term or long-term view. In the one to two-year or six-month lens, it gets a little dicier. If Russia cuts off natural gas from Europe, like, there are going to be a lot of people who suffer a lot. And we have the opportunity now, in part because the cost structure of renewables is so clear and so much preferable to dirty energy, that we have the opportunity now to accelerate, initiate a, a rapid transition so that five years from now, Putin or his successor won't have us over the barrel in the same way. And in fact, I would say this is speculative, but I do think that there's some degree in which this war is the result of a petrostate dictator realizing that His national income is disappearing because his main clients are moving away from the product he's selling. And that there's a sort of like, if not now, when logic to this invasion. Now, that's not to say it's the total logic. There are other things going on, too, of course. But I do think that in a world in which we had no fossil fuel dependency, that our geopolitics would, I think, be a lot calmer as well.
2: In terms of talking about alarmism, you know, I mean, I think it was the main criticism of your work five years ago that it was too alarmist. Even climate scientists have made that criticism and in general they tend to be quite tame in their presenting of the facts. Why is there this reticence from scientists to really come out with the alarmist position? And I think that's why you wrote the essay in the first place is because not enough people were sounding the alarm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this, this essay was from 2017. And it, as you said earlier, was was really looking at worst case scenarios of four or five, even six and eight degrees of warming. My book is more of a likely range, which has, has some four and five degree outcomes in it, but is also looking at outcomes of two and three degrees. So it's scary, but it's not quite as terrifying as, as the original article. My sense is that over the course of these years, we've seen a really big shift in climate rhetoric from scientists, also climate advocates, also from presidents and prime ministers and secretaries general. Almost everyone in a position of consequence on climate now talks about it in existential terms. Now, that's not to say they think if we get it wrong, we're all going extinct or anything like that. But you do see a really new kind of climate Rhetoric, and I would say even in some cases, climate hyperbole from some of these leaders. And that marks a shift, but it also helped create a shift. And what I mean by that is five years ago, when I first started writing about climate, there was very little alarmist talk. That began to change in 2018 with this UN report talking about the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2, which is the report from which we get the we got to cut our emissions in half in the next decade. Then it was picked up and amplified by, by Greta and her climate strikers. And there was a sort of a period of maybe a year or two when non-traditional climate advocates were speaking a much more vivid language of urgency and alarm there was still some resistance to it in the climate community but very quickly scientists and older guard advocates saw that it was mobilizing huge numbers of people and changing the way that political leaders and even corporate leaders were addressing the issue that tone has become much more common now so common it's almost brushed past like the un secretary general said at the, at the when this latest report was released that we are firmly on the road to an unlivable planet the Secretary General of the United Nations said, unlivable planet. <laughs> that was like, cited in some headlines, but it wasn't like the only thing that people were talking about on the planet anymore, in part because I think you know there is some risk to just like people tuning out scary language that they've heard before. And that was one of the criticisms that scientists and climate advocates made in this earlier era when they were trying to be much more cautious in their expression of the risks and, and the state of the crisis. They also, I think, are temperamentally cautious people. They're used to doing things, you know, getting things through peer review and that sort of thing. And I think they also had a particular idea of what was mobilizing and motivating to people, which is to say that the public needed an optimistic story to give them hope. Otherwise, they would fall into fatalism and despair. And I think to some degree that was valid, especially for scientists who really knew the material and who had been sitting with some amount of despair for a long time and were desperate for any signs of hope. I came at it as an outsider who didn't really know that material. And I was like, wow, I was deeply naive about how safe things were and how in control it was. And I needed to be awakened from that complacency, not reassured that there was still hope. I think the bigger lesson there is that people come to this issue from a variety of places, from a variety of backgrounds, with a variety of different ideas about how bad things are. A regime or a program of climate communication meets those different people in different places so that It can organize different constituencies and maximize the number of people who are engaged on the issue as a whole. I was an example of someone who was not scared enough. I needed to be scared more. There are probably some people who are already too scared and need to be reassured. But we shouldn't think that there's one way to talk about this issue because it's far too complicated a story. I do feel some misgivings about the alarmism that I contributed to during that time. What I worry about is that we got so focused on some of these truly apocalyptic scenarios that now we may define as successful outcomes that are pretty bad, maybe even really bad, used to be called catastrophic. You know, island nations of the world have called it genocide. African diplomats have called it death for the continent. And we're in a situation where, at least as you know, climate conscious people in the wealthy world, we may define those same outcomes as victory. Because compared to a four or five degree world, a two and a half degree world is a lot better. And we did make progress. The use of climate alarm to set the bar means that. Planning for your next trip? is going to seem like a good outcome when we should never accept any of these outcomes, you know, as optimal or anything close.
2: The other thing with the alarmist position is of course with the IPCC, we've had year after year of them coming out going we've run out of time. So where can we take this kind of language? How do we keep people going if we're saying there's no time left and we've gone over the deadline? And I guess this leads me to a related question, which is the film Don't Look Up. It really tries to tackle that sense of urgency, doesn't it, and the sense of a timeline. Maybe you can answer the question together. How do we tackle that sense of urgency currently? How do we get the message across? And do you think Don't Look Up? was a good metaphor or analogy to get that message across.
1: On the first question, it's a big thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is to say an honest assessment of those warnings that have been made in the recent past about running out of time. Conservatives, climate skeptics would say, oh, it's just the boy who cried wolf. But it's really the opposite that's happened. It's like the wolves were there. Those timelines that were quoted in 2007 and 2015 and 2018, those were real timelines and we blew it. So now we are living in a different world with a different set of futures than we could have been living in if we had taken action sooner. We're trying to motivate as much urgent action as we possibly can. And yet we have lost the opportunity to secure a world of 1.5 degrees or below, which at least for a period of five years, climate advocates have defined as the target. What does it mean to be now navigating a future in which nothing that could be honestly called a success is achievable? But I think we need a successor. Otherwise, we're going to be turning ourselves into pretzels, pretending that if we do this triple bank shot, blah, blah, blah. Maybe we can possibly give ourselves a 25% chance of single at 1.5 degrees or whatever. The morally serious perspective is just to say any amount of warming that we can avoid is worth avoiding. But I think that that's not as galvanizing a message as we need to cut our emissions in half in 10 years or we're screwed. Now that we're past that point, what do we call a target and what do we call victory? I don't know, it's really complicated. You know, it's also complicated because different parts of the world are going to be affected in very different ways. So, you know, I wrote a a piece this fall on the question of climate justice and the relative responsibilities that a country like the U.S. has compared to sub-Saharan Africa and India, for example. If we take these projections seriously, we're going to land at a temperature level that is manageable for the wealthy world and unmanageable for the poor world. How do we talk about the fact that, you know, say, my children are going to be living an okay way, affected, of course, you know, in a world that is degraded to some degree from what it would have been otherwise, but also in ways that are recognizable and familiar to me. Many millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia are going to be impacted in a much, much, much more dramatic way. Almost all of sub-Saharan Africa, with the exception of a couple of countries, it's estimated has already lost at least 10% of their potential GDP thanks to climate change already. And a huge chunk of those countries have lost twenty percent or more of their um, so they're twenty percent poorer than they would be without climate change today and if you project that forward we're talking about a world in which people like you and me may be able to navigate the landscape with some difficulties but able to manage it and in other parts of the world, you have just much more catastrophic impacts that are much more universally damaging the quality of life to every person there and how we think about that future it's really hard to philosophize and conceptualize once once we get beyond pretty narrow or at least nationalistic definitions of self-interest, we have a really limited capacity for empathy and humanitarian feeling towards those living elsewhere in the world who, who are suffering quite a bit more than us.
2: The climate crisis and a global pandemic, they're global. They cross borders. You can't shut down the borders on this thing. It is really daft.
1: There are going to be people, wealthy people living in wealthy parts of the world who can walk on a, around on a daily basis in 2050, not thinking like the world is on fire. On the other hand, we are so connected, not just in terms of viruses traveling around the world, but in terms of, you know, the stuff we buy is produced in these Like just to, just to be like a crass American consumerist person like. If like Shenzhen is like flooding five times a year, like, where do you think they're going to be making our iPhones? What does that mean for our inflation rates?
2: Well, we are already uh, seen it, the supply chain. Yeah. We're all really rather inconvenienced by it. We're also inconvenienced by the war in Ukraine because, you know, gas prices have gone up.
1: Which is not to mention that, you know, the, the large bulk of sub-Saharan African countries who import a third to a half of their wheat from those two countries and who may be dealing with, I mean, we think a little higher gas price is a problem, like something else much more dramatic could happen.
2: One other thing that we don't talk about as well is the emotional element because we're all connected on social media. So think about how upset and the emotional psychological toll it's taking on people as we watch what's happening in Ukraine. It is deeply upsetting. We're not going to be able to unsee what's happening in the rest of the world because we're all so digitally connected as well. And I don't think there's a discussion around that. We might be able to walk outside our front door and live a reasonably normal life, but we're going to have imagery of human suffering. I don't know that we really want to live a life where we're thinking we're just fine here and the rest of the world is not only not flourishing, they're dying. So I think that's a really interesting one. But the second part of the question was don't look up, that sense of urgency that – was an asteroid, wasn't it? Asteroid or meteor, whatever, coming at the earth and they had six months. So it was a very defined six month deadline before the entire world blew up. It was really interesting to watch the psychological cognitive dissonances going on. They're very, very similar. They parallel what happens with the climate crisis. But do you think that metaphor was helpful?
1: Well, I should say up front that I'm I'm biased about this in a couple of different ways. So Adam McKay, the director, is a friend of mine, and he's developing my book into a TV show. I found it a quite unnerving movie. I felt like my my knees were wobbly, actually, for a while afterward. And the most powerful thing about it to me was the cornball way it invoked our collective fate as a planet and how fragile our collective existence is. So I found the last Spoiler alert, things don't end well in that movie. I found the last third of the movie really terrifying, but also moving in the sense that it was a tribute to the basic beauty of human civilization and planetary life and how horrible it is slash would be if we were to lose even some chunk of that and potentially all of it. You know, there was a fair amount of criticism of that central metaphor for the the reason that you're sort of honing in on, which is to say climate change isn't like an asteroid exactly. It's getting worse over time. It's not, you know, a deadline. We do have, depending on how you want to think of it, decades to deal with it, not just months. It isn't a universal challenge. Different parts of the world are going to be hit differently. And so it's not an extinction level event, but something about how suffering is distributed around the world. You know, those points are all True, there are differences between climate change and an asteroid hitting the planet. I don't think Adam McKay or David Sirota, who wrote the movie, would would deny that. That's you know to me that's the use of that's the value of satire in particular is that it presents much you know heightened conflict and drama to illustrate the things that we may not be able to see so clearly about ourselves. So yes, climate change is not coming to kill us all in six months if we don't take action on it, and yet you Pull back and think about the human experiment, which is now 10,000 years old, or however you want to count several million years old. A 10 year timeline is pretty damn short, <laughs> and we're not responding to that 10 year timeline like it's a short timeline. We're talking, we're responding to it like it's an almost infinite timeline. And I often say, if it were an infinite timeline, I actually think we'd be doing pretty good. Like, we seem to be bending the curve here. Like, we're probably going to peak emissions in the next over the next decade, you know, we're probably going to get to Something close to net zero emissions by, you know, in the second half of the century, although it really matters whether it's 2050, 2060, 2090, or 2100. But if we had an infinite amount of time, I would be actually quite encouraged by what's happening. The problem is that we don't. I think a movie and a story and a cultural event that shows us, you know, in some heightened way, even if it's to a certain degree misleading way, just how urgent the challenge really is and how we can't put off action or pretend that it's not pressing, I think that's a really, really valuable tool. And I think that it's genuinely like a great contribution to the climate cause. I also think it's like a, a landmark moment in Hollywood. you know before I wrote my big article, the magazine editors would say about climate change articles this is maybe something worth doing but nobody's going to read it and now we have a whole new ecosystem. I don't mean to take at all you know, single credit for that. It's a lot of people doing a lot of interesting work. But five years later, we have a much more robust ecosystem of climate journalism, in part because me and many others have demonstrated that there is, in fact, an audience for climate writing so long as you can be experimental. Some people are much more explicitly ideological and political than I am. Some people are much more deep narrative. I was like alarmist, but you can try a whole different things. But if you do experiment, there is an audience there. And as a result, we have a much more robust climate storytelling landscape than we used to. I think the same is coming true in Hollywood in part because of this movie, although some of the trends were there before, which is just to say like nobody was willing to make a climate change movie 10 years ago. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is a climate activist. This is the first time that he's ever touched a project like this. Nobody would have thought to cast movie stars in a movie that was this grim and dark. And yet, as you said, it was this monster hit, which I think is, first of all, a good indication on its own like a lot of people watched it, but it's also really telling because we live in an algorithmic entertainment universe where, like Netflix, kind of tells you what you're gonna what you're gonna watch. And Netflix decided it was gonna tell everybody to watch this movie. That's like a really different just world than the one we were living in five years ago, ten years ago, where no. This is before the age of true streaming, but like no studio head was going to be like, we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars paying the biggest stars in the world to make a climate change movie. And then we're going to promote the hell out of it and put it in every theater and make, you know, nobody, nobody thought that way. We're seeing in Hollywood, there's a sort of a phase shift here, too. And I think there are likely to be many more projects going forward that are deal with climate change, maybe not as explicitly or as pedantically as as Don't Look Up, but which are um, much more comfortable talking about and doing storytelling about our climate future and what it means for us. And I think that's a really valuable development too.
2: It got us talking about timelines because that's what humans find very hard to fathom. And so it got our headspace into that, that space, that difficult space, talking about the difference in the timelines, everyday people. And you picked up on something a moment ago about, I interpreted it in my head as a certain amount of loneliness. You know, the characters portrayed in, in this, in the story of the scientists of just feeling like you're walking around in an alien planet. I certainly feel that way. I often walk outdoors after I've worked on a big climate piece I've written or whatever it might be. And I just see people walking their dogs and consuming coffee and takeaway coffee cups and just getting on with things, driving big four-wheel drives or SUVs. Do you feel lonely at times, David, in all of this? Have you had moments of loneliness and um, that alienation feeling?
1: Well, I think the honest answer is yes. I also think that I have a sort of a temperamental preference to be like a wallflower rather than being part of a crowd. So there's something comforting or affirming to me about feeling like I'm seeing things differently. I think that's a temptation that a lot of us in this space probably should try to police in ourselves. I think there is something comforting in a perverse way about feeling like you are possessed of secret knowledge that the rest of the world doesn't have. I would also say that I worry about this dynamic more generally, not in terms of my loneliness, but in terms of the ongoing quotidian rhythms that you're describing seeing out in the world, because I think that we have an, I think a lot of those people have had climate panic attacks. I think a lot of those people have put that behind them in part by normalizing a level of climate disruption that a generation ago would have seemed unacceptable. You know, I see this when we talk about wildfire. I go out to California, I report on wildfires. And everybody in California is just like, well, we've always had fires. And I'm like, no, your fires are five times worse than they've ever been in the history of modern California. Meanwhile, like you're all breathing in polluted air. And like, this is a whole different regime, fire regime than we were talking about even five years ago. But they don't see it exactly in those terms because we have such an incredible capacity to normalize. So for a long time in the climate community, climate advocates would say, what's it gonna take? Is it gonna be a major hurricane? hurricane Hitting the the continental US, well, that happened with Hurricane Katrina. Is it going to be a major hurricane hitting New York City? Well, that happened with Hurricane Sandy, and we just moved on.
2: Oh, well, we thought and the fires three years ago here in Australia. We thought the catastrophic bushfires. We've never seen anything like it. We thought that would shift things, and then they did surveys afterwards, and the perception and acceptance of the climate science had not shifted a inch. Like the number of deniers and the number of you know alarmists, they stayed the same. Nothing shifted. And then of course, here in Australia, we've been having these floods, but you know, it remains to be seen whether that changes anything. And as you say, we've got this incredible capacity to normalize and to adapt. And I suppose in some ways that provides me with some hope. If we can adapt to this, maybe our ad- adaptation process won't be as traumatic. I don't know.
1: It's complicated. I would say on the movement of public opinion, I'm a little more optimistic than you. I don't see dramatic movement, but I do see ticking up in the right direction. Basically in every country of the world, it's not jumping 20 points, 30 points in a year, but it's, you know, it's moving in the right direction. So that's some progress. It's insufficient, but it's some. But yeah, I feel really ambivalently about the lessons of our capacity for normalization. I've talked a little bit about air pollution. I wrote a long piece last fall in the LRB, the London Review of Books about air pollution in which I wrestled with this question, with this fact that if 10 million people a year are dying of air pollution right now that is almost certain to be higher than the most extreme estimates for climate mortality at any point this century so it is a defensible claim to say that more people are dying of air pollution now than will ever die from climate change now how do we think about that fact it can comfort us it can make us think climate change isn't going to be as bad as the the stuff we're dealing with today and that's true and it's also true that air pollution's getting better which is also encouraging. So there are a few different ways in which it's optimistic. On the other hand, it is a moral abomination that 10 million people a year are dying of air pollution today. And I think we would be much more honorable people with much more intact environmental consciences if we said this is unacceptable. All of our impulses in the present are to say whatever the present is, is our status quo, is therefore more or less acceptable. We may have issues around the margins, but we don't find it at core an unworkable future. But if 30 years ago someone had said, you guys, you got to wake up or 10 million people are going to be dying every year of air pollution, that person would have been doing important alarmist advocacy, may have had some effect on public policy. And yet would probably be described today by the average person on the street as insane because we had so totally normalized the thing which seemed completely unacceptable a generation ago. I talked earlier about the degree to which I'm a little bit of a reformed alarmist. My profound feeling about indefense of alarmism, even now, is like we need to remember how scared and moved and horrified we were by some of these impacts. Because if we wait until they are with us, we will just find them familiar. And that is not a healthy development. It is truly unhealthy. And it may lead to accepting or acclimatizing to, uh, to coin a phrase, a much higher level of human suffering than any objective accounting would say was, uh, you know, a workable future for us. I think it's useful to always be thinking decades into the future. And I think it's also always useful to remember the outrage that we felt when we were when we were forecasting that way. So we don't forget just how bad it would have seemed to us if the things we're actually living through came to pass and try to remember as we're living through them that they were not inevitable, that we could have changed them and that the world would be a much better place if we had. And then to try to apply those lessons going forward and saying, what is the range of outcomes from the present? And how can we do what we can to try to land the future closer to the most optimistic end of those outcomes, as opposed to just letting the worst happen and choosing to accept it in defeat.
2: I've never heard that perspective actually. And I find that really interesting. I can tell you've, you've had to wrestle the last five years with your <laughs> previous alarmism and you no doubt defend it multiple times. But that's a really interesting sort of sweet spot between the hope. The alarmism and realism. It's, um, interesting thought. I'm going to, I'm going to reflect on that after, after we, we hang up here, but I'm aware of time and I do want to ask one last question. I don't ask all guests this question. It's not always relevant, but I think it's particularly relevant to you. What is left if we lose it all? And I imagine David, you've contemplated that in long, lonely nights staring at the ceiling as you contemplate the destruction of the planet, but What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think that's part of the feeling that I had watching the end of Don't Look Up was that feeling of destabilizing loss and, you know, tragedy. And I do think that we are heading into an era in which we're going to lose a lot. Some of those losses in some parts of the world may seem total. You know, if a particular community is no longer sustainable in a particular area, it may mean those people may leave and find comfortable lives elsewhere, but it will mean abandoning their entire heritage, which was a hugely important thing to their upbringing and their parents' and grandparents' upbringing. And those kinds of um, historical discontinuities are likely to, I think, become very common in parts of the world thanks to climate change. And they they are really tragic. I don't think that we're really at meaningful risk of truly losing it all. It's a hypothetical, I
2: guess, because of course, Eric Fromm posed the question in the face of nuclear threat. And it was, you know, how do we want to live our lives in the meantime? You know, what really matters when you're aware of that existential threat?
1: The most important lesson to me is the humanity of other humans and the value of their lives, no matter how distant they are from mine, no matter how foreign their habits and cultures are from mine. The cultural training that I and almost everyone else in the West has gotten to basically treat suffering as a natural feature of the developing world must be discarded. And we must reckon with our own responsibility for that suffering and our own responsibility to prevent future suffering, as opposed to turning away and taking comfort in a much smaller circle of empathy in which lives are, relatively speaking, uh, more prosperous and fulfilling. I think that that's the big challenge for all of us that climate change raises, which is how can we activate our feelings of universal brotherhood and sisterhood, universal humanity, and define the lives of other people who we don't know, who are often less prosperous and less educated than, than we are. How can we define those lives as equivalent to our own and then take action that follows from that commitment? And it's a hard task. I mean, like, you know, talk about the gas prices in the U.S. It's like people don't like paying even a little more, let alone, you know, whatever, a massive program of reparations towards the global south for what's happened with climate change. That's, you know, politically a really hard sell. But I think even on the margins, to the extent that we can open ourselves up to those lives and what they demand of us, I think, you know, the healthier we'll be as a species and as a planet.
2: I think that's a wonderful answer. It's a beautiful answer. And I think it really does provide a framework for what we can do, how we can spend our hours and our days in the meantime. I mean, it's a pursuit that I think brings incredible amount of satisfaction and joy amidst everything else. My answer is much the same. I adhere to a similar way of living because it actually keeps me on straight and narrow. It keeps me sane and it also keeps me fighting. Sounds good to me. Well, listen, I'm going to leave it there. You have provided some incredible answers. For everyone listening, you can read David's column now in um, the New York Times. You've recently moved over to the New York Times. I really recommend that. And look out for your movie in a couple of years' time, no doubt. In the meantime, everybody can go and get a copy of your book because I understand it's still a bestseller around the world. And I'll have all of these details in the show notes.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you and hope we, hope we can catch up again too soon.
2: There is a lot to take in from this chat and I think I'll let it all just settle with you. I do, however, encourage you to subscribe to David's column in the New York Times and I've put a link in the notes to follow his thoughts on all of this. I will also just say something on alarmism or more accurately, telling the truth. We are entirely capable of being freaked out and acting and we will always rise to this dual capacity in critical times. Now, while the temperatures haven't increased as much as they could have, which is awesome, due to the fact we did in fact freak out and we acted, the urgency certainly has increased. We are certainly in critical trouble with less, potentially not enough time to fix it. Five years ago, The debate about alarm may have been a somewhat fair enough one, but now it's really inappropriate to not be blaring out the truth. We need to make sure everyone hears so they can make an honest choice about how they want to contribute to the future. As I write in This One Wild and Precious Life, my ultimate fear is that anyone in my orbit realises in another five years' time the truth and then despair that they didn't do enough. Aside from all of this, we are now in the climate emergency. The truth can't be avoided or unseen. We're here. We're in it. And so the most appropriate, responsible and caring thing we can all do is to talk it front on, brutally if need be, because the truth is brutal. And not let's ever forget that the history books are filled with people that are being called alarmists, but they turned out to be the very forces that saved us. Obviously, this is an ongoing discussion, but I think it's a really crucial chapter in the story. Once again, don't forget to share and rate my podcast if you like it and stay wild.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,